Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's mentally yours from Ellen and Welcome to Mentally Yours, Metro.co.uk's weekly podcast about all things mental health. I'm Ellen. And I'm Yvette. And this week we're chatting to science writer and author Alex Riley. We're going to be chatting to him about his first book, a cure for darkness and depression. I think 2015 might be a, a year that I'd use to say that's where things became apparent. Um, but it goes much further back into my childhood where I had um, a family history of, of mental illness. Um, there were stories of institutionalization so my mother used to tell me a story about my grandmother who um she remembers the day when she was uh sitting in her living room in uh Bradford where they lived and a van pulling up outside and men coming out in in uniform and taking her away on a straitjacket and she was about 13 my mother when this happened um this story was told to me when I was a child and maybe a teenager and probably in my early 20s so it's kind of recurring story that 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 was told when my mum sort of was feeling depressed herself to try and explain this this was why um this was part of our our family history um and so I kind of had the idea that depression was a part of our family history it was just it wasn't really spoken about and a lot of people in our family didn't really believe that story that my mum told and I've tried to find the records of it myself while researching um, the book and <clears throat> it's in the 1970s and so it was kind of very difficult to find those records um, even as a grandchild of of, of uh, Rini, what was her name. Um, and so yeah, it kind of I had these moments of my childhood where I would become um, kind of struck with like a mental pain and I wouldn't be able to kind of control my emotions and um, I think the origins were, were probably around that time when my mother was 
heavily drinking and my dad wasn't very supportive emotionally for his own reasons. Um, so I think fast forward to then to 2015 when I'm 25 living in London, my parents have just separated after 30 years of marriage. Um, I have my first job. Um, I'm living in a, a very small room and not earning a lot of money. Um, and my girlfriend breaks up with me. And it was this moment where I just seemed to feel this separation between me and the world. And it was, I didn't even call it depression. I didn't know it was depression. It was my girlfriend actually who told me that I needed to really try and figure out what was going on because I just lost interest in the world. It was just, it was just like I started to disappear. Um, so it wasn't really the classic symptoms that you might have with depression it was just sort of a, an absence um and i think that's when i really started to realize that this isn't going to go away and because of my family history i was just thinking this could become quite severe my cousin had been institutionalized for schizophrenia uh, a few years before and he's around about my age and all these things sort of came together and that's when i reached out for a therapist and also um, eventually antidepressants. How did that go with the therapy and then the antidepressants? Um, therapy was, it was more successful, I'd say. Mm -hmm. I, um, I knew that there were, you know, side effects to taking antidepressants and I was working, um, I was kind of writing alongside my full-time job. So I wanted to become a, a science journalist and I wasn't really sort of making ends meet I wasn't really pushing through um with that with that career and I worried that antidepressants would really sort of blunt that that side of things to kind of be able to you know synthesize quite complex science and translate it for a lay audience and um so I went for CBT um first of all and that was a very sort of it was a workshop essentially of 30 or so people um I found it really helpful the, the the theories and trying to implement them in my life but it really just wasn't enough um to make much of an impact so I used to cycle to my yes yeah, sessions and it was just four sessions over four weeks um and yeah that that was in the end of 2015 um and then by the early 2016 I was on an SSRI and then that dose just kept being increased and increased and all I really felt from that was moments of of kind of stability um but every month I'd come crashing down into a almost a, a suicidal black depression that um yeah just became so dangerous that when I was on the maximum dose uh my my partner had to keep my antidepressants because they could have been used for you know, suicide. So it got to quite a dangerous point. Um, and it was, but both were helpful to some extent, but ne neither really did, did much. Um, and that's why I sought further therapies. And also what inspired this book was, you know, the hope that there was something more, that there was something that the doctors weren't giving me. Because I think it's interesting that the book's title is A Cure for Darkness. And I think, were you looking for a cure, would you say, rather than a treatment? No, I think that would be naive. Mm. But I think the the I was hoping for something that was nearer to a cure than it was to just management. Yeah. Um, 
and because I couldn't keep facing the future if it was just these sort of monthly recurring depressions. Um, so I think that the title comes from, because uh, it's a historical book primarily and fitting around my own experience. Um, these words popped, popped up time and time again. So it was, you know, cure was used not in the sense that we use it now, where, you know, it's a complete removal of a disease without any further treatment required. It was more of a, this is care. Um, it's actually the etymology of cure. It comes from the word care. And a, a darkness was just something that was used throughout history for, for as long as I could, you know, find moments um, where people are talking about depression or melancholia. You know, darkness was was one that, that, that popped up time and time again. So that wasn't really a personal um, element of the book, um, the title. And why did you want to um, take this approach? Because obviously there's been sort of a few different approaches on um, books about depression. So why did you particularly want to look at the history and also different cultures rather than, say, just a personal kind of memoir? Well, like you say, it was there are books that have done that already and very good books that have done that. And I didn't think I could add anything with my story. It's quite an ordinary story. Um, you know, a, a man in his mid-20s has you know, depression and a family history of depression and seeks antidepressants and CBT. It's not really a um, a gripping epic. So I think I had to add something alongside my, my story. And that came from me being in academia earlier in my career and then transferring into science journalism. So I really wanted to kind of use the skills I learned um, from, you know, publishing in science magazines and just turn that um, on myself in a way and just sort of kind of ask the questions of of what does the science show or what does the science guide us towards um, and I think it's just basic curiosity I just whenever I wrote a story I'd probably do far too much research for what I was writing and I think a book allows you to do that to no end so I just had this free free kind of like role to just um dip into history and kind of understand where my position was and where my family's position was in this really um huge story of depression that exists as long as people have have written words there's always been some kind of um reference to to people having depression and suffering with suicide um so that's where it came from it was from my 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 work and um trying to kind of seek a better understanding. And I don't think there were any, really any books that did that in a sort of narrative history context. And um, yeah, I hoped I could, you know, try and um, reveal some of the misunderstandings, kind of correct some of the misunderstandings that had been um, spread by, um, there's a lot of misinformation in books that are um, any type of memoirs or um self-help books and I tried to kind of um try and understand them myself and see if they were backed by evidence so do antidepressants work does CBT you know is it just sort of paying for a friendship and things like this that have been you know misconstrued and are still sort of discussed today I think that sounds very um kind of scientific and noble and wise but can I ask to be blunt was there any kind of more selfish element of you wanting to write the book did you hope that okay this I might stumble upon something that 
will fix my issues and make everything better. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it was, um, um, I think when I started writing the book, I was, yeah, like I said, I was pretty much maxed out on um, um, antidepressants and CBT had been through further rounds of CBT by that point. And it was, yeah, it was, what else can I do? Because um, these approaches aren't working so well. So I wanted to find, um, first of all, how to define my own depression because I found, you know, huge variation in in the syndrome of depression. You can have, you know, several diagnoses from history uh, depending on which symptoms you have. And I wanted to, first of all, understand my own um, my own experience and see if there are any more tailored treatments that would help me. And so that led me towards sort of, you know, they, they sound quite you know obvious, but I wanted to find the evidence behind them of, you know, exercise, how much exercise would be beneficial to someone with depression. Um, Cause obviously exercising with depression don't really go hand in hand. So how much do you actually need to do to get some sort of benefit? And it wasn't as much as I had, you know, had thought, which was reassuring uh, then there are sort of more historical practices such as meditation um, and in the book as I go into trying um, psychedelics um, and this sort of this sort of psychedelic therapy revolution that seems to be you know taking the headlines at the moment. Not to completely spoil your book and I do encourage anyone listening to buy it and read it but what did you find out what what were your discoveries from doing this? Um it's difficult. It's, um, there's no sort of, there is no um, cure for my particular type of depression. I think there are cures for more biological forms of depression that are um, more brain-based. So I go into deep brain stimulation in the book and you know, how this technique of stimulating a certain part of the brain can reroute um, pathways that have become so ingrained from a more biological, really severe type of depression. Um, it's more more like Parkinson's than you know your everyday depression. I think that is where a cure for darkness could come from. Is is those approaches, but that wouldn't suit me because it's more of a. I think it's more social. It's more you know from my upbringing, and um, I think my approach would be more psychological, mixed with um, certain drug based um, treatments. So with the exercise and with the meditation, I think that really did help me. I think I'm in a better place now for it. Um, and also just knowing that SSRIs and CBT aren't the only options available if, if I was to, to relapse severely again. So, um, I think just the, having that hope and that, you know, that understanding that you're never stuck because there's so much out there to try. Um, I think, you know, the, the term, treatment resistant depression is banded about quite a lot but that only means that you've you haven't um responded to two or three different treatments and to know that there are many many more treatments than that i think is is something that um brought me a lot of of reassurance and hope for the future um and so i, I still practice all the things i discuss in the book like from from meditation and exercise and i'm still antidepressants i've come off them this year but this winter was particularly difficult, so I've gone back on them and, um, you know, trying a new therapist. And I think it is, it's an ongoing battle and um, I'm still kind of finding my way to, to something that is 
managing the depression because sometimes it, it, it still comes back and becomes quite dangerous. You mentioned exercise in there a few times. I just wanted to bring you up on um, one point because you, you mentioned that actually you don't have to do as much as you thought. Um, how much is it that you have to do out of interest? So, because um, I was running probably too far, so I, I really wanted to, you know, you know, just do as much as I possibly could. And I started to run, you know, maybe I think I was doing two half marathons a week, some weeks, and, you know, in distance, not, you know, planned things so I was just really you know trying to do everything I could to 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 make myself feel better and looking into some of the literature that I actually might have been making my situation worse because I was essentially fatigued and my body was producing a lot of um, pro-inflammatory um, uh, molecules that might have been actually adding to my depression so there are some studies from the early like 2005 I think was one of the most famous studies where it's about 30 minutes um, exercise three times a week. So um, that was about a 5K run um, yeah, every other day for me. And that's why I implemented into my life is that's the, that's the minimum I need to do um, in terms of you know, um, exercise alongside all of my other options. And because I was doing so much beforehand, that was a bit like, okay, that's, <laughs> that's definitely more manageable. Mm, but I don't think that's uncommon sort of your response because I've definitely heard other people struggling with mental health issues you know they they hear kind of the buzzword endorphins of you know I need to get some endorphins so they will go and you know fling themselves at really serious heavy exercise regimes and like you say maybe make things worse um, without realizing because you do sort of pick up that as, as being yeah that, but as something that might help because obviously you're just looking around for anything that might help um were there any other sort of big surprises for you um, in doing your research, just maybe in terms of the different perspectives there's been in, in terms of um, depression through the ages or just different um, opinions people have about it in different cultures? Yes, I think one of the, the biggest surprises for me was this idea that depression is, is malleable. It changes depending on which culture um, you you live in so I didn't know this at, at all but when I started the book and then I started researching you know depression through the ages and depression around the world today and even though the symptoms are the same how a, a language or a culture defines the depression can be really quite different so I traveled to Zimbabwe with some amazing work going going on in psychological therapy in some of the most disadvantaged communities there um, so they've started to use grandmothers who are really well respected in the community there they've been used since the 1980s for you know, basic medical uh, medical sort of education and sanitation and um they're essentially community health workers but they call them the grandmothers um and they've now taken on this role of psychological therapy using problem solving therapy to help people with what we would call depression but when they started this project um there wasn't a term for depression in in the local language. So they had to actually define what the symptoms meant in in this language. And what they came up with with discussions of with the local community was thinking too much. That's what the more definitive uh, description was. So depression for us is the low mood um, in sort of the UK and other Western countries. And thinking too much was 
Kafungasisa in the local language. And that really got to the heart of the experience of depression in that culture and allowed them to then diagnose people and build a sort of project around that. And ever since then, they've been providing problem-solving therapy to other countries in Southern Africa, as well as their, their work has now been transported into the US. And I follow it into New York, where ex-drug dealers and ex-people um, um, sort of who've been incarcerated or put in mental institutions are now helping others through their lived experience. And they're using the work that first started in Zimbabwe. Um, so this kind of cross-cultural um, change in how we perceive depression really kind of opened my eyes into, you know, the individual and then the also the sort of much larger changes that can go on um, with depression and just how how varied it can be. Um, and there are other examples in in China um, where depression, to say you were depressed would actually be an insult to the, the communist state. So another uh, more bodily um, definition was created of neurasthenia, so a weakness of the nerves. And that was more socially acceptable because um, it wasn't that you're being, you know, you're not mentally ill because you're living in a, um, a communist-led country. It's actually you've just got weak nerves. It's a bodily thing that you can get treatment for, even though the two things are probably the same. Um, so, yeah, around the world, it's just fascinating to kind of watch or see depression changing from one definition to another. Um, and that was really probably the most interesting thing that I found um, from the book. Um, and in terms of present day, there's loads of interesting stuff throughout history. But right now, I think that was amazing. And the fact that it led to this grandmother-led psychological therapy was just, yeah, it was something I had to had to learn more about and meet the grandmothers and talk to the people who set this this whole project up. I love stuff like that. I think also like there's a lot of chat about, oh, in Denmark or like those kind of countries, everyone's so happy and everything's great. Was there any kind of, when you were doing your research and looking around at these different communities and cultures, was there any instant where you were like, they're getting this right, this is what we should all be doing? Um, not really, because depression's probably quite similar in most countries. Mm -hmm. um, so happiness and depression aren't, aren't exactly opposites of one another you can be you know quite happy quite a lot of the time but also suffer with depression and I think there were moments where I was like okay maybe we need to focus on you know the opposite of depression and you know yeah happiness or maybe quality of life and yeah I think that would be another book really <laughs> I'm sure that would be it would have taken far too long to complete with uh, the deadlines I had <laughs> completely fair I know also you mentioned briefly um, psychedelics and that's something that's being talked about a lot more. What did you find out about that? Did you explore it personally? Um, personally, yeah, it was something I, I, again, from a moment of desperation, I wouldn't recommend someone with, you know, past traumas and depression to really to go into that on a personal level. It was just um, something that I decided to do and um, yeah, didn't kind of, get the maximum benefit from from doing that. I think that's because it's not just about the the drugs or the the substances that you're consuming. It's all about the the guided therapy, having someone there who can take you through these moments that these substances can bring out some quite horrific memories and, you know, make you relive them. And if you don't have someone there to to help you through that, then 
it's it's um yeah it'd be quite difficult to get to you might become stuck um and that's what i worry about if if you know we kind of take the 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 angle that these drugs are going to revolutionize depression they're going to cure it for for people and then if people try it themselves and find that actually it makes them worse that's what concerns me and i put my own personal story in there just as kind of to say you know i was being quite stupid um by doing this and i think it really does require these two these two fields of of psychiatry so i have the psychological therapy as well as the biological treatments um they go hand in hand with psychedelic therapy and i think that's what was really important um away from myself i do think that these drugs are incredible what they can do for people who have failed multiple rounds of, of treatments and seem to be you know stuck in in a in a really severe depression especially if they're if they're kind of growing or if, if they came from an area of trauma or childhood abuse i think their ability to bring out these these moments and allow people to to reflect and go through them i think it, they're so they're, it's just incredible that these they can do that and they've been used across cultures for you know millennia so um i think it's just a case of science trying to catch up to this indigenous understanding and you know they have to go through these randomized controlled trials just to become approved by medical bodies but we also have this you know long long history of using these these substances around the world from siberia to the sahara to south america and um it's yeah, it's an exciting time, I think, for for a subset of people with with depression. Mm. I think it's great that you haven't been kind of afraid to to uh, you know mention the sort of more possibly more controversial treatments or approaches um, to depression, because um, you also mentioned in the um, ECT, and that was sort of your approach to that was sort of seemed fairly sort of su- surprising in that I, I think. Um, well, I listened to you on another interview talking about how I think you're, initially you were very kind of against it and thought it must be very negative, but actually you learned that it, it had been very beneficial for some people. Yeah, I think going back to my um, the story of my grandmother, I think my mum had this also this idea of her being given this treatment, and I don't think that's the case. Um, even if she, she, she was institutionalised, I don't think she would have been given ECT, but it was something that has been abused uh, in quite recent history. So um, I was surprised to find how effective it, it can be when used correctly. So for people with really severe depressions often come with delusions such as their bodies are rotting or um, you know their insides are frozen, these sort of really sort of horrendous delusions that people can become stuck in with certain types of depression. I mean, I've seen ECT being used and you know, people coming around from these these um, horrendous um, illnesses within you know three to four treatments. Um, I think to see that chronologically in history in the history of the book is just to see you know the, the early promise of this treatment and then it being abused and being used on the wrong people um, without the, the correct. Um, uh, safety ar- ar- around this treatment because it is an aggressive treatment i think anyone who uses that will will acknowledge that it is an aggressive treatment um but it's not always a last resort if you have someone who is indicated for it it is very safe 
in the right hands. Um, and yeah, it's, it's one of the most effective treatments in the whole of medicine, never mind in psychiatry. Um, and the long-term benefits have been shown from um, surveys done in Denmark and other Scandinavian countries of, you know, the long-term benefits of having ECT for people with severe depression, um, reducing their chances of developing dementia later in life. And, you know, it's, it's, yeah, it's quite remarkable. Um, and I think some of the, the stigma that it has is justified because, yeah, it, unfortunately it has been used to control people. It's been used for people who would never benefit from it. And so they just, they do suffer from, you know, the side effects of memory loss or, um, confusion and, yeah, so it, it's a really um, unfortunate story to, to a really amazing treatment. Mm, and I think probably just the aesthetics of it as well. You know, people can picture it and it's been used in films as this, you know, this image, this sort of terrifying image, along with people kind of getting put in straitjackets and locked up, all that sort of things. It, it's So you can see why there's sort of fear around it. Um, and I guess, like you said... Yes, that, that's the, the old treatment of... Sorry, the old treatment of it being used with without muscle relaxants where people are jolted and, you know, that is horrendous to see. I think, you know, you have one flew over the cuckoo's nest where Jack Nicholson does an amazing job of, you know, acting that. And that's true of what it looked like 40 years ago. Um, But right now when I watched it, it was, it was just like a, I don't know, being like a dental surgery and, you know, the, the patient doesn't move. They're just sort of little, um, stickers attached to just next to the temples and um, yeah they're it's about 40 seconds and all you get is this sort of receipt that comes out of this machine showing their their brain activity so it's it's a really unremarkable scene um, these days and and you have two nurses an anesthesiologist and a psychiatrist in the room so it's um, yeah it's more like a, a tiny little surgical unit I suppose what I'd like to sort of finish up with is, um, well, actually a couple of things. Um, first of all, what have you found most helpful to kind of the big one in terms of you and your depression in terms of managing it? Um, but then also having written the book, what sort of response have you had from friends and family? Um, because also, you know, you said you have this family history uh, of mental illness. Mm-hmm. Um so in terms of treatment, I think what I've found is a, an antidepressant that works for me um, and that I can fall back on um, during tougher times. I think I take the practice of CBT and use that in my like daily life, but that doesn't seem to be as effective. I think if I was to remove any of the treatments or therapies that I use now, I think the one that would be most the one I would miss most and the one that my partner would miss most is the antidepressant. But that's just my personal take. Other people might not respond to it. Um, And it's just a shame that I had to be on another antidepressant for two years when I was starting writing this book. And that just didn't happen to be, that wasn't a suitable match. So um, yeah, I wish it was, you know, meditation or I wish it was, um you know a really good therapist but yeah for me it's the antidepressant and I think I've become more comfortable to that fact I think it's quite difficult where you have to accept that this is 
what's making your life function is, you know, taking this pill every day or every evening. And um, that's still difficult. I still sometimes think that I shouldn't have to do that to, to be well. But I think then I think back to, you know, my cousin, my grandmother, my mother, and, you know, all the sort of problems we have. Um, my cousin's on a very, very strong antipsychotic um, and he has to have regular blood tests to check his immune system. And, you know, um, I just think that um, you have to just see the, the the benefit of that and just think, isn't it amazing that we have this, this drug that can keep me stable, um, that can keep me alive um, right now? And I'm always trying to come off it, and I came off it early this year and went back on. Um, so, yeah, I think um, that's what is is most beneficial for, for me. Um, and in terms of the reception of the book, um, I haven't received as much from family as I would have expected. Um, and I think that's perhaps because I try not to blame anyone in in the book, and I think that you know a lot of you know my mother's problems um, with alcohol and uh, her own depression um, are still you know, difficult topics to discuss, uh, for both of us. And, um, we don't speak very often. And, um, I think this book was written, it wasn't written for my family. It was written for other people suffering with depression and, you know, trying to find some sort of community out there that maybe someone else will benefit from me being transparent and honest. Um, so I think that they they are proud, um, but um, you know, my mum's a mobile hairdresser and my dad worked in construction. So I think there's a kind of an element of um, pride, but they're not necessarily you know thinking, um, uh, you know, they they don't come from writing backgrounds and you know might not really understand a lot of it. So. It's just kind of a pat on the back, well done. <laughs> and, uh, um, yeah, um, so I think I wrote this, I didn't write this for my family. I think I wrote it for other people with depression. So this is goodbye from mentally yours. So go away, enjoy your day, get on with all your chores from mentally, 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 mentally yours. Mentally yours. If you've been affected by any of the issues we've discussed today, you can give the Samaritans and Ring on 116123. If you like Mentally Yours, you can also find us on Twitter. We're at MentallyYRS. We also have a lovely Facebook group, which is just called Mentally Yours. And if you really liked us, you could do us a massive favour and give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It's much appreciated. Uh, helps us, you know, continue doing what we're doing. So please do rate and review and check back in next week for more Mentally Yours. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.